Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Uh, Before we get to the news of the week, a little later in this episode, we have a very special treat for you, which is in our Aren't We Relatable corner. I am interviewing my son, True, about the children's book that he and I have co-authored that is available for pre-sale now. So I'm interviewing my son, True, a little later. But before we get there, Ravi, what's going on this week? Well, this week we're going to do a deep dive on this event called the Conservative Political Action Committee. The you know CPAC Summit is something that listeners, if I could avoid introducing you to this gathering, I would. But the reason why we're focusing on it is because it tells us a lot about where the GOP is and where it's heading. And uh, this gathering, I think, revealed some things that are pretty scary about the, the current uh, Republican Party. And we'll start with former President Donald Trump, who in his speech at the CPAC gathering in Dallas, returned again to election-related lies. You know, the New York Times asked me a question. What happened in 2020 that was different from 2016? I said, well, I'll tell you, we did much better in 2020. We got 12 million more votes. We won by a much bigger margin. And so, Jason, what should we make of the fact that Trump continues to peddle lies about the election? Well, first of all, anybody out there who's expecting him to change in any way, like, I don't know where they've been for the last several years. So I don't think any of us are expecting that. Uh, What we can make of it is, is he thinks it will work. Uh, It has worked for him in the past. He's literally peddled lies about everything throughout his entire career. It's how he's gotten ahead. I mean, during the Trump administration, we used to say that the you know everyday governing motto was just get to tomorrow, right? It was never like setting up a plan for anything. And that's what this is. Right now, he's dealing with the fact that he just lost an election and like he lost it in a pretty embarrassing fashion. And that can't be a reality when your brand is I win. You know, if you're with me, you're the winner and you stick it to the other side. Well, you can't have that be the reality. So you got to continue uh, on this ridiculous stream of lies, which you know, we think of it as like an attack on democracy, and it is. But with Trump, that's just the the sort of after effect of it. That's just sort of the side effect is that it's an attack on democracy. Really, with him, it just starts with he can't accept reality. He can't allow you to accept reality. So he has to keep telling this lie over and over and over again. It's not going to stop. What What's notable about the speech is Trump seems more and more comfortable just admitting to how he operates. And so there are a few revealing moments uh, in the speech. You know, and one he said, by the way, you have a poll coming out, meaning CPAC has a straw poll. Unfortunately, I want to know what it is. 
you know how they do that straw poll, right? If it's bad, I just say it's fake. If it's good, I say that's the most accurate poll ever. So basically he's just saying like, I'm going to call out this poll if I don't win it. And if I win it, I'm going to say it's accurate. But even more revealing, Jason, he said, I didn't become different. I got impeached twice. I didn't change. I became worse. I became worse. So let me repeat that. I didn't become different. I got impeached twice. I became worse. And he was contrasting himself with Barr, who he said was cowed by the impeachment process. You know, the conventional wisdom is that people uh, have become immune to anything that Trump says. Uh, But these seem particularly brazen comments. Is this going to matter? How do we make it matter? I guess is a better question. Let's take these separately. The first one where he's just out there saying, look, you know what it is. You know what I do. At this point, honestly, that's the behavior of a person who I think is just sort of downtrodden and depressed. Like Donald Trump doesn't have his usual coping mechanisms, right? He doesn't have his usual interaction with his adoring public, which is social media. I mean, he's putting out these just completely pathetic statements that are tweets, but put out as statements of the president, which... By the way, it's like this whole strange irony because there was that whole thing for a while, that meme where people took his tweets and they put them on like official looking statements. And now like that's actually what's happening. He's putting out official statements that are tweets because he's desperate for that interaction, that adulation. And I think he's just starting to uh, sound like somebody who not only thinks that they're going to lose the next time, but knows they lost and like... I just think he's depressed and I think he's just going, screw it. I, you know, he's not trying. That's the first comment. The second comment, I didn't become different. I got impeached twice. I became worse. To me, that is an example of this thing where everybody says, you know, gaffes, particularly from Trump, don't matter anymore. That's the kind that I think does. Now, not in a primary, right? Because that's what we're talking about with CPAC. Not in a primary. But in a general, when a gaffe is something that is you saying something inadvertently that sounds like a confession to be what everybody thinks is true, that can actually hurt you. And and to me, I think that audio or, or that video clip playing over and over again in a general election with him as the nominee, you know, I got impeached twice. One, reminding people of that. And then two, acknowledging like I got worse that gives people uh, who you know might have been Republicans in the past but chose to vote against him in the last one, that refreshes their recollection. And I think that's a real error. And I think both of them come from the fact that um, I think he's just kind of a sad sack right now, moping around uh, Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. And we're going to spend some time in the This Week in Misinformation segment actually talking about some ways in which he is absolutely correct that he has gotten worse. And like, it's hard to even imagine a worse version of him than the October 2020 version of him. But the 2021 version of Trump absolutely is worse. And and we'll talk more about that. I often wonder, I, I search my brain for the people in my life who support Trump. And I think about a conversation I had with my dad early in the Trump presidency, where I said, I asked him, hey, like, when Trump says he's, you know, he could shoot somebody uh, on, you know, in the middle of Fifth Avenue and his supporters used to be with him. Is that you? And my dad said, yes. Uh, I was like, does he really mean that he would like that he would still be with Trump after that? And then you look at this and this is a guy who says that uh, and has said many other incredible. Um, and I don't use the word fascism lightly. I was one of those people who throughout Trump's presidency was like a little bit like, hey, like, let's call, let's be very careful about escalating the rhetoric on on things and calibrated accordingly. 
he absolutely is flirting with fascism and he can do that because he has supporters like my dad who are going to stay with him no matter what he says. And we know that because the same crowd he said that to voted 70% to say that he would be their nominee. So he has adoring supporters who will support him no matter what. And to me, it's, I don't even know that it's adoring of him at this point so much as it's just your basic tribalism. It's just basic personal identity. At this point, no matter what Trump does, the folks who are the Trump people, you know, the folks who vote with a 70% of CPAC crowd, they're not doing it because they genuinely they are like, that guy's the best. And I've, I'm over, you know, over and over again, I'm objectively analyzing what I see from him. And, and I just like it over and over again. I don't think it's that. I think it's, I'm a Trump person now. And that's, that's my identity. And what he does I'm for that because if I stop being for that, now I got to go find a new identity. And the stuff that he does that people like Ravi and Jason and the listeners of Majority 54 hate, that's the stuff that I like. I like it when he makes them mad because that, you know, brings me closer together with the other Trump people. So it's at this point, it's tribalism. He's a tribal leader and it is like he could shoot somebody. It doesn't matter because it's not about him. It's it's a, it's about it's bigger than him now, and which is really scary, but also means its its ability to grow is severely diminished. Right. And I think that means that our strategies to defeat this ideology is to create alternative identities, potentially. Right. Yes. Uh, and now, like that identity probably isn't Democrat. Right. Like I, I'm, I'm not I, I have a hard time believing that some of these people are just going to be like, yeah, I'm a Democrat now overnight. You have to think about like, well, all right, what, what, are, what are other identities that people have that conflict with the identity as a Trump person? And we've talked often about the most potent identities people have as, as parent, as coach, as teacher, et cetera. And I continue to think that one of the reasons why Biden won and, and one of the, the best cases we have to make in the future is to get at this this tactile experience that everybody who's a parent or a coach or a principal or a teacher has, which is the responsibility you have to be honest, to be trustworthy, to, to distill the right values in the next generation is so obvious on a day-to-day basis when you, when you talk about it in those situations. Like a good example is Trump with this election, right? There's like a certain very high percentage of the GOP that we're not going to be able to convince one way or the other on this election. But there is that 30% or so that still believe that the election was fair, which is a crazy small number because uh, it was 60% were thought that the election was going to be fair before the election. And now it's 30% or so, something on that order. But like the conversation could be, hey, if your son was in a baseball game and they lost, like, do you want them whining to the refs afterwards and complaining? Or do you want that that ride in the car to be about, hey, what could we do differently? What can I do better? How do I improve my skills? You know, like, is there something there? You know, is that our line? I, I, I think it's something along those lines. The problem with that is that they go, well, if if the umpire was paid off by the other side, yeah, I would absolutely want my son, to, you know, or, or my daughter to stand up and say something about it. So I feel like it's more along the lines of like, I mean, I'm about to I'm about to say something pretty drastic that may get me in trouble because of the analogy I'm going to draw. But I'm excited to keep this. <laughs> when in. I was and and maybe I've used this analogy for something else that was more appropriate in the past. So forgive me if so if it's a repeat. But when I was in intelligence school and we were going through and we were talking about terrorist cells, 
I remember one of the things that they taught us was that, look, you got the bomb maker, you got the trigger man, you got, you know, you got the driver, right? They taught us the different roles in it. They get, you got the financer or the fundraiser, all that. And, and they said, you, you can go about it the way we had been going about it early in the war. Like you can try and find those guys and capture or kill them, like, which is part of what you're going to be doing over there. They said, but don't forget that the surest way to put that cell out of business is to get two out of those like five, four or five guys, a good job right now they have self-worth now they have and so i feel like to some extent what we have to focus on is just on the good governing side making sure people and it kind of takes me back to you know when he caught a lot of flack for it that when president obama said years ago when he said you know when things aren't going for you personally like you're going to cling to guns and religion now like he misspoke but his point was when you don't have another identity to fall back on, when you don't have something to make you feel good about yourself and your place in the world, you're going to find other people who feel that way and you're going to join up with them and say, this is the reason we don't feel that way. So I guess my point is it doesn't have to be a political message. If more Americans felt connected to other Americans and they felt like they have a place in the world that is respected, you're going to see less extremism across right. the board. Right. You know, this reminds me, this is going to seem like an unrelated point, but, you know, a couple months ago on the internet, there were videos circulating of Marjorie Taylor Greene doing kipping pull-ups, which are pull-ups that are particular to the CrossFit community. And I, and a lot of people that I know, I I did not post about it, but I was tempted to because it was funny for a second. And the reason why I didn't post about it was I've traveled the country. I've been to CrossFit gyms in Iowa. I've been to them in Arizona and Richmond, Virginia. And I connect with people in those places who unquestionably have different political beliefs than I have. And those places are secular churches in many communities. They're where people come together and they have an identity around fitness and wellness. And I got really nervous about that attack because you don't want to then say, you don't want to provoke a reaction from people where they say that CrossFit now is Republican, right? right? Like that is a dangerous place to be because it is not Republican. It is not Republican or Democratic. It is an apolitical institution in many ways that is actually really important to so many people. And when I saw a lot of people on the left making fun of that, uh, I was like, if you're in Richmond and you're kind of apolitical, you can go to go one way or another, right? And you look at people attacking your community institution like that, then you're going to, you're going to be a little bit more susceptible to attaching a political identity to that institution in a way that I think is very harmful. If that, does that make any sense? It makes perfect sense. It, it reminds me of something that Axe, David Axelrod says repeatedly about the 2016 election, which is if you tell people over and over again that you don't need them, they will believe you. Right. And look, we have to be objective about things like Marjorie Taylor Greene is awful in all sorts of 360 degree directions. All right. But I saw that clip too. She's clearly pretty strong. She's clearly in, in, she's clearly physical, physically fit. What we have to be better than that. Like we can't decide that we're going to like, if you look at that and say that is in no way impressive for a, a woman of her age, then you've lost all your objectivity. She can be a terrible person. She can be all the things she is. She can be a QAnon dangerous extremist who is in Congress and still objectively be physically fit. And and when when you treat it as if she's not, 
Well, then you're starting to lose credibility and you're alienating an entire group of people that aren't bonded around politics, but now you're entrenching them. Right. You know, this reminds me of the critical race theory debate, right? Which putting aside what is critical race theory, we talked about that already, but there was this this part of the conversation in which uh, I, I voiced some concern about some of the ways that we talk about race in this country. One of the reasons why I have concerns about like, like focusing so much on the immutable characteristics of people at the exclusion of all else, particularly white people, and the way that we talk about this term, white people, is that the GOP wants to say that there is this community called white people that you belong to, and they want to attach political significance to that. And they want to say, they are coming for you because of who you are, and they're threatening your entire way of life. And I feel like there is a subset of people on the left who also, like, who, who basically make very parallel points to say, this is who you are. This is an unchanging aspect of you. Uh, you can't really do a whole lot about it. You need to apologize for it. And here are a whole bunch of things that, like, like a series of consequences we're going to attach to that. The, the right loves this. They, they love it when we say, like, you can both acknowledge the fact that privilege exists without saying that this is this is a totalizing experience for you that you need to spend the rest of your life apologizing for. Because even if you think that's true, that is not going to work. Like, that's not going to convince that person in Richmond, Virginia. They're, they're not going to read your book and be like, oh, you know what? That's right. You know, I haven't been voting or I've, I've been voting Republican here and Democratic there. And now, like, I'm going to change all my behavior because you explained to me the privilege that I have. Yeah, people listening to this should just think of it this way. Take politics out of it and think about the last argument that mattered to you that you were trying to, uh, you know, win with somebody close to you. But whatever it is, you didn't win that argument if you won it by shaming the person for having the opinion they had. Now, you might have pointed out to them that they were wrong, but what you did if you if you brought them to your side is you invited them to be right with you right you didn't you didn't assign to them a a moral failing by having the wrong opinion you told them why you thought their opinion was wrong and you invited them to start being right and you didn't say like and i will forever hold against you the fact that you have been wrong that's the difference between trying to win arguments and just trying to score points on social media in politics yeah, we have to inspire people. You know, Obama's right. politics needed to be updated for today. I'm not in any way saying that like how we ran in 2008 is exactly how we'd run in the future. I mean, even Biden updated those politics. But the one thing that he got right, and that I am absolutely proud of about those campaigns, is that we we had a more JFK ask not what your country could do for you approach. We were like, hey, we we're gonna we're not gonna shy away from the weight of history, and that part of the the updating of that politics is, is just how specific we need to be about how terrible our history has been for some of the most vulnerable in our country and what those obstacles truly are. But we need to inspire people to lock arms together and and overcome those barriers uh, as opposed to trying to um, shame people into it. And, and like, once again, I'm, this is not some kind of red herring. I'm not saying that's the only politics that exists out there, but it's big enough. But uh, Jason, there are a couple other things about this CPAC conference I want to talk about. And one of them is there are a few moments where uh, the GOP just became explicitly anti-vax. There was one point in which a commentator explained that our country fell short of our vaccination goals, and that got a huge round of applause. The government was hoping 
that they could sort of sucker 90% of the population into getting vaccinated, and it, and, and it, and it isn't happening, right? There, there's a, younger people are well aware of what the risk is. And then there was a, another moment where Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, is that how we say her name? I'm not no. sure. She says, you know, she went on this whole rant, we don't want this, we don't want your welfare, we don't want- We're here to tell government, we don't want your benefits, we don't want your welfare. Don't come knocking on my door with your Fauci outie. You leave us the hell alone. And so now we have one political party in this country that is explicitly anti-vax. Uh, and I'm not just talking about anti-COVID vaccination. They're becoming more and more straight anti-vax. Uh, Jason, what does that mean for our politics? I don't know. It's really scary, right? I mean, to me, to, to me, like what it means for our politics is like just what we've already known, right? Which is that our politics has now become this like giant, all-encompassing blob that just moves through society and just stuff is like, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not in politics, and it's like, yes, you are, and pulls it in. You know, first it was like football, and then it was the Olympics, and you know, and now it's like, oh, vaccines and science. Like, yeah, you're right here in the middle. I mean. That's what I think it it means. Um, I'm not sure how to extricate uh, our, you know, whatever it like in this case the vaccine science from our politics uh, at the wholesale level. But for people listening, I do think that this is something to think about. Is that is is are you in a conversation that a few years ago would not have been a political conversation when somebody brings up, for instance, the vaccine. I think a good safe harbor to go to is go like, hey, hey, okay, I get it. I actually don't mean to talk about politics about this. And, you know, to me, like, this isn't political. And then I think you just go back to what we always say, which is go personal and be like, to me, this is not political. This is personal. I wouldn't, I wouldn't bother to have this awkward moment with you where I ask if you're vaccinated, if I didn't care about you. And I just didn't want to see you on a ventilator dying. Like, so I don't, I don't, I know there's politics and everything involved, but like that, just so you know, that's where I'm coming from. I, I, to me, that's the way out of that big, all encompassing blob. Totally. I had an experience with this recently. I can't remember if I, I mentioned this on the podcast, but there's somebody close to me who is reluctant to get the vaccine. And actually, this is somebody who's uh, more on the left than the right anti-vax crowd. So kind of like that new age kind of, uh, like, like wellness and healing. Yeah, exactly. hundred percent. Yeah. And um, I just said, hey, like, I don't want you to get COVID. Uh, I have a lot of friends who have long COVID. And I kind of tried to explain a little bit about how bad that is for those people, like the brain fog and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I said, also, like, I travel. Like, there are all these places I want to go that are definitely requiring it. It makes it a lot easier. Uh, and I would want you to have that freedom. Um, and, and there are all these cool places that are restricting that. And of course, everybody wants to go to Buffalo Bills games where at a time they were requiring that. But then I said, you know, I'm not going to like get mad at you if you don't like just like it's totally your call. And I hope you make the right decision. And they eventually got it. Uh, and I'm not saying my conversation did that. But I think like I think that if too many people in that person's life were like finger wagging at them, which I totally understand, by the way, like I get it, especially if you're a parent and you got kids in school, like there there are public health reasons why we should strongly consider stronger measures to require these things. So don't get me wrong about this. I'm just saying in that in a world where we are not doing that as a collective, 
and it's up to us individually to convince people what is the most persuasive. And I think it's, it's a little bit of a like, hey, I care about you, like you're saying, and then a little bit of a step back saying, but I'm not going to like, I'm not going to be on you about this, you know, mm-hmm. um, because that just doesn't work. Like if it worked, I promise you listeners, I would be recommending it, but it just from my sense, it just doesn't seem to work in most cases. A um, couple of things about this, by the way, to layer in just about how serious this is. My former state of Tennessee, their Department of Health uh, has ha- announced that they're halting. Well, they didn't even announce. So there's an intrepid reporter at the Tennessean, I think, got some emails via FOIA requests to show that the Tennessee Department of Health is halting all adolescent vaccine outreach. That was I wasn't misspeaking there. It's not COVID vaccine outreach. I'm talking about all diseases, which is something we predicted a couple weeks ago or months ago where we're saying like the new terrain is all vaccinations. And this is happening at a time where 42 states saw an increase in COVID rates over the past two weeks. The director of the CDC said that 99.5% of deaths over the past few months are unvaccinated people. Uh, And so this seems to defy political wisdom where we have a political party actively advocating for and celebrating actions that are costing lives. Uh, this is like the ultimate what's the matter with Kansas moment. What's the what's the end game here? Is it just going to take major outbreaks of diseases for this politics to change? And would that even change it? Because then would that just be more fodder for more victim blaming and, you know, goal shifting and obfuscation from the right? I don't know what it's going to take, but I know what this behavior reminds me of because it's really self-destructive behavior, right? Like, I mean, that's what it is. Like, it's it's a, a state controlled by one political party. I mean, despite the fact that you've got Nashville, you got Memphis, you got Chattanooga, you got towns, that, you know, in Tennessee, Knoxville, that probably, you know, the majority of the folks are not down with this, but it's controlled by Republicans and it's them going, no, we're not going to do this thing. You just the best gave thing Knoxville a ton of credit, just by the way, as a Tennessee. Yeah. I'm just kidding. I love you, Knoxville. I'm just messing with you. Well, I'm, I'm just saying like it's more progressive than like Tennessee as a whole. I've given a speech at like the Civil Rights Center of Knoxville. So that's why I'm going to get I mean, so maybe. many a- angry Knoxville DMs. <laughs> hey, I, I love you. I'm just kidding. I'm messing with you. But I guess it, what it reminds me of is like when sometimes as a parent, when your kid gets really overtired and frustrated or like hangry, they'll start like, like and sometimes like if true's like working on, like he's got this Rubik's cube that he's working on. If he's like working on the Rubik's cube or he's like working on putting together a Lego thing and he's tired and hungry or whatever, there's a place he can get to every once, every couple months where he'll want to like smash his own thing. Like, it's almost like he's protesting by being like, I'm so upset. I'm, and that's what this reminds me of. It's a, it's a tantrum that's only hurting themselves because they're like, Oh yeah, you want to help me? Well, I'm so upset and I, and I'm so unhappy with things that I'm going to hurt myself, which I know hurts you. It's a really weird tantrum politically. I don't know where it goes, but I I do know that the answer to it is definitely not these takes on social media. They're like, well, if that's what Tennessee wants to do, that's fine. With like snide, stupid references to natural selection, and that I mean, that's not the answer for sure. I mean, the answer is love. I mean, I not to sound like ridiculous and like a hippie, but like it's just like with your kid. When your kid gets like that, the answer is, hey, give me a hug. Let, let's let's just hug. Like. Right now, I get like that's a weird analogy when we're talking about unvaccinated people, but you you get my point. Yeah, and now I'll leave it with this, which is the stakes couldn't be higher. You know, there's a study from a couple of years ago from the University of Illinois that showed that 
200 million plus cases of polio, measles, mumps, rubella, rabies, hepatitis A, varicella, adenovirus were prevented in the U.S. Uh, between 1963 and 2015 because of vaccinations. That's over 200 million. And, and listeners, if, if you're in any way like confused about like the consequences of that, just Google any one of those. Uh, this is horrific stuff. And as we saw a couple of years ago in California, like when people are under vaccinated, these viruses will come back, they will spread. And not only will they spread to the people who are unvaccinated, as we've learned with coronavirus, unvaccinated people are variant factories. So that's how uh, these things morph and then impact everybody else who is vaccinated, which gets to the political point of it's my freedom, it's my right to not get yada, yada, yada. You know, it's a collective action issue. This is where government should be more forceful. There's nobody on the planet like you, so why would you buy a generic mattress built for everyone else? Helix Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete and matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. With Helix, you're getting a mattress that you know will be perfect for the way you sleep. Ravi and I took the Helix quiz. Turns out we're both side sleepers who like a medium firm feel, which is why we were both matched to Helix's Midnight Luxe mattress. So if you're looking for a mattress, just go to helixsleep.com slash majority54, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that'll give you the best sleep of your life. The mattress comes right to your door, shipped for free. You don't ever need to go to a mattress store again. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash majority54. That's helixsleep.com slash majority54 for up to $200 off and two free pillows. I was thinking a little bit about Babel the other day when I was reading this great article uh, on The Athletic. It was the untold stories of Ichiro. And what it was, it was all these anecdotes from people who played with Ichiro Suzuki about how funny he was and how deadpan he was. But I couldn't detect from the anecdotes whether he was speaking to them through his interpreter or not. And it just made me think about how hard it is to go to another country and just have relationships and how important it is to have a really solid way to learn the language. You know, speaking of that, Jason, I'm, I'm gearing up for another potential trip to Italy and I've just been using Babbel to brush up on my Italian and actually improve it. They are the number one selling language learning app. They teach you everything from like the basics, like how to order in restaurants or ask for directions. So how could you listen to the radio and understand what's happening or read a book? With bite-sized lessons you can actually use in the real world, Babbel is a can't-miss travel essential. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. So right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. That's six months for the price of three. Just go to babbel.com and use the promo code MAJORITY54. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com, code MAJORITY54 for an extra three months for free. One more point on CPAC, Jason, um, and, and we could be quick on this, but I just want to arm our listeners just to talk about this both sidesism. Um, Tim Pawlenty, the former governor of Minnesota, went on CNN and had a back and forth, and we'll listen to a, a short clip of that. I do want to ask you, um, because I'm sure that you have an opinion on the matter, CPAC, the conservative conference over the weekend, which is always colorful, right? We know that. There were, according yes. to our, our uh, Donio Sullivan, Three percenters and Proud Boys just walking around at CPAC. I mean, this is different. 
Well, yeah, look, at the grassroots level, there's a lot of, shall we say, interesting people in politics, right and left. I don't think we're seeing something like this on the left. We may have not yet have seen it at the left on at conferences, but we've certainly seen it in the streets all across America. Antifa's behavior in Seattle, for example. I bet if I went to any number of leftist gatherings, I could find a bunch of goofballs as well. But do you know of any? I'm saying, do you have an actual example of that? I asked you, Governor, because this is an actual example. Jason, I wanted to focus on this because I know our listeners are dealing with this kind of both sidesism all the time. And I just want to lay down a marker here. When Tim Pawlenty talks about Antifa in Seattle, and and he's being asked about in the context of Donald Trump at CPAC, this is the kind of move that we see on the right all the time which is some person who claims to be on the left somewhere in this country or a group of them did some bad things. Therefore, the standard bearer of our party, when he goes and speaks to the luminaries and the leaders uh, of our party and and uses his megaphone over and over again to advocate for crazy uh, authoritarian racist things, those two things are equivalent to Tim Pawlenty, or he's trying to say that. And basically, as they're trying to hide from the fact that the leader of their party, the person who shaped their politics over the past decade now, uh, anything he does is excusable because somebody somewhere on the left did something bad. Uh, and I think we just need to call that out. Like Joe Biden wasn't at that Antifa protest, but Donald Trump repeatedly is, is at the equivalent of that for the right. I wouldn't even say it's the equivalent, but like the worst things happening on the right, often Donald Trump is right at the center of it. To me, this is one of those times where if you're in a conversation about this kind of thing and people do the both sidesism, uh, this is where I like to use the, can you see how I feel the way I feel thing? And and I would lay it out for people, right? And I would, and you know, you don't got to like try and trap them, just say like, okay, um, can you name a member of Antifa? You know, and if they can't, okay, maybe they say like some ignorant stuff. They'll say AOC or something. Yeah, they'll say like AOC and you're like, like, yeah, but okay, but she's not actually a member. And they'll say, well, yeah, she is. And say, okay, let's assume that you're right. Does she admit it? No. Okay, so it's not like an accepted thing on our side. Oh, okay, all right. So then you go on and you say, all right, but let's let's say there were actual members of it and that, that the president of the United States, who you didn't agree with, went and was talking to them, right? And then you say would you be afraid? And yeah, well, okay, now you don't have to agree with me, but can you see why this makes me feel fearful? Because I've tried that a few times with people and they will generally go, I can see why this makes you feel fearful. They won't always say you're right, but they'll say, I can see why it is. And at least if you can get them to uh, like empathize with that emotion, you're, you're making some progress. Right. Yeah. And we saw this, you know, for listeners who didn't listen to it, we talked uh you know, a few months back to, to my brother who voted for Trump. And, you know, he's not representative of the entire gamut of the right. And it's, it's possible his views have changed. But at the time, he wasn't like, hey, Joe Biden's this evil guy. He's this terrible guy. It was more like he is captive to this yada yada of the left. But like you're saying, it's like push people to say, like, OK, like give us evidence of anything equivalent to what Trump did this weekend um, at CPAC for Joe Biden. And they're really going to struggle. In This Week in Misinformation, let's talk about the January 6th insurrection. On Sunday, Trump, during a Fox interview, called the insurrection a love fest between the Capitol Police 
and the people that walked down to the Capitol. There was also a love fest between the police, the Capitol Police, and the people that walked down to the Capitol. He insisted the protesters were peaceful. And he then just waded right into the conspiracy waters of trying to hold up this woman, Ashley Babbitt, who was shot at the Capitol. By the way, while you're at it, who shot Ashley Babbitt? Why are they keeping that secret? Basically, they're trying to paint her as a, a martyr. He asked uh, in an, at this interview with uh, Maria Bartiromo um, from Fox News, you know, Trump asked, who is that person who shot an innocent, wonderful, incredible woman? This is a person who was trying to, by force, enter the chambers of the Capitol. I will tell you, they know who shot Ashley Babbitt. They're protecting that person. I've heard that it was a head of a security detail for a certain high-level official, a Democrat. I think they're trying to say it was Pelosi's uh, security. I mean, this comes on the heels of everybody from Tucker Carlson calling the um, January 6th insurrection fake and where elderly people showed up with signs at the Capitol, he said. And it was, you know, he said everything from it was orchestrated by the FBI to the fact that there was no insurrection uh, or that it was nothing more than a political protest that got out of hand. They're not even being consistent with themselves because obviously if it if it was orchestrated by the FBI, was it also nothing more than a political protest? Like I, the, all these things contradict each other, but we'll go crazy thinking about that. The real question here, Jason, is we've now gone from the fact of life in January 6th and post-January 6th where people like McConnell and other members of the GOP were, they were appalled and they were clutching their pearls about how just surprising and terrible this was and were even flirting with the idea of voting for impeachment, which obviously most of them did not, um, to the point now where the GOP is fully embracing conspiracy theories uh, about the January 6th insurrection. This seems like a meaningful change. Yeah. It, it is frightening. Believe it or not, I'm going to give you like a, a silver lining on this, which is not easy to do. But the silver lining is, is that just like with the revisionist history that they're doing about the election, this is revisionist history about just like with that, about something that they know is an enormous problem for them, right? As well, it should be, right? Like, it should be an enormous political problem in the next election if if after the last election, you tried to take over the government by violent insurrection, right? Like, that should be a major political liability, and they're aware that it is. So much so that they're not trying even to spin it anymore. They're trying to erase it, right? They're trying to come up with anything they can to the point where, I mean, God, think about that poor person who was doing their job, serving their country, made an incredibly difficult decision, the most difficult and heart-wrenching decision a person can make in that situation, which is whether to fire, and now has lived with that decision, regardless of all the pressure and all the, the you know public stuff. Just if there had been nobody ever knew about it, it was just a regular shooting uh, in the course of their work with no cameras and no political controversy, it would still be a heart-wrenching decision to live with. And now that person has to worry about their own safety and becoming a political football, not to mention the fact that he's once again putting you know, members of Congress in enormous danger by with the intimation that he's making. All that aside, the silver lining, I suppose, is that's a big midterm election problem, and they're just trying to erase it, and they know it. Yeah, the, the claim was by so many on the right, that the January 6th insurrection, I had people literally tell me this to my face, the January 6th insurrection and Trump are two different things, right? And that like his his statements to the protesters uh, that day and, and the tweets that he had in the lead up to it and all that were vague and that he couldn't have any sense about what that would unleash, right? Which is complete bullshit, but it was their claim. 
Now he's fully embracing it. And as you know, a lot of people, David Frum from in the Atlantic and, and others have pointed out, this is a shift because when Trump was in the White House, you know, a good example is Charlottesville. He did say the whole both sides thing. Uh, you know, they're good people on both sides, et cetera. But uh, what he did not do was give specific praise of the um, racists in Charlottesville. He tried to do a little moral equivalency and kind of vague his way out of it, right? Like through sort of more general statements. This time he's explicitly praising uh, the people involved in the January 6th protest. This seems like he's more emboldened. Um, and there's a certain theory at work here that I think is a little dangerous. And what Frum was saying in The Atlantic is that this is this is a step in the direction of fascism. And he, like me, had been careful not to use that term uh, in certain situations in the Trump administration. But he said, um, he pointed to a lot of evidence from prominent members of the right where their justification for their actions is starting to shift. So it's no longer this thing didn't happen or it was, um, it's not what you thought it was, right? Which people like Tucker Carlson have said, but people like Tucker Carlson and Trump are now saying it probably did happen somewhat the way you said it did and it was justified. And here's an example. And, and I, I read this not because I want to elevate this voice, but because this is a voice that is very prominent on the right. There's this guy, he's like a podcaster named Daryl Cooper. And Tucker Carlson read a tweet thread from this guy on the air. I'm not going to read the whole tweet thread, but I think it's instructive to read a part of it because it'll tell you a very dangerous strain of thought on the right. So he basically says that those uh, people who were in January 6th were entitled to do what they did. And this is what he says. The entrenched bureaucracy and security state subverted Trump from day one. The press is part of the operation. Election rules were changed. Big tech censors, opposition, political violence is legitimized and encouraged. Trump is banned from social media. And they were led down some rabbit holes, but they're absolutely right that their government is monopolized by a regime that believes they are beneath representation and will observe no limits to keep them getting it. Trump fans should be happy he lost. It might have kept him alive. This was read on the air by Tucker Carlson on Fox News. In the end, Daryl Cooper writes, not every theory about election fraud is true, but Trump's voters, quote, are absolutely right that their government is monopolized by a regime that believes they are beneath representation and will observe no limits to keep them getting it. End quote. That is true. And every honest person knows it. They're essentially saying we are not like the people who won this election are not even entitled to have the seats that they have. And therefore, anything is justified in the name of taking them out. That feels like fascism to me. That's 100 percent fascism. And on top of that, what we have to remember is Trump is going to be the worst version of Trump for a while. And the reason for that is because he's got to win a primary. Right. Like and and he cannot have the. Uh, perception of his presidency be anything other than exactly what a Republican presidency is supposed to look like. Because if it's anything other than that, then he he's exposed and he's vulnerable in the primary. I promise you, he's not thinking about the general election. He's thinking about winning the primary and he's got to make everything that he's ever done the thing that you're supposed to do. I mean, if you can if you can shape the question, then you can get the answer you want. And he's shaping the question that they'll be asking in the Republican primary. Now, the reason that I say that's a silver lining, while it is, meanwhile, super scary for the country, politically, the the, uh, the silver lining of that is, is that that means he's going to take that party to the most extreme place that it's ever been. And politically, 
that is a very difficult place to come back to when it comes to general election time. Yeah, it's it's kind of a hard thing to wrap your head around because like there are two things going on simultaneously potentially, and and I, I I agree with you. Although I nothing would surprise me, I agree with you that this makes the Republican Party more vulnerable and and less likely to succeed at winning than they otherwise would be. Than if like say like they they had like a pro business lower your taxes kind of straight down the line conventional Republican campaign. There, I do have some questions about that in my own head, just because like he has obviously been very successful at activating people that he hasn't before. But putting that aside, it's probably true that this stuff makes him less electable. But the consequences of his losing, if uh-huh. he runs on this, are catastrophic at this point. Because yeah. like yeah. we will not get a version of Trump that we got last time. We will get a like I actually believe that the Trump that we got last time maybe didn't warrant the capital F fascist. Uh, name. I haven't really thought through all the different definitions of that term. Disagree with you, but that's okay. But like unquestionably, what we get is worse this time, uh, and and that the enablers will be way worse too. I guess the you difference know? is is that the Trump we got last time aspired to fascism. The Trump we would get next time would instill fascism. That's the yeah. difference. And right. and so you're right. The, this you know the midterms, and then especially the presidential in 2024. They're it's the highest stakes ever. It's not, you know, every election is the most important election ever. This one's the highest stakes. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I don't have much positive stuff to add to that uh, as we <laughs> end this conversation. Um, Jason, you want to leave our listeners with any, uh, any, anything tangibly optimistic about this conversation? Well, let, let's, let's go out of order. And before we do Aren't We Relatable Corner, we'll do Grab an Oar. And we'll just say that the Grab an Oar is... If you're not doing more than just listening to this podcast right now, you're kind of doing it wrong. You should be hooking up with campaigns. You should still be making phone calls, doing the work. Like that's the gravinor is that the stakes for the next, you know, three years, two to four years are as high as they've ever been. Uh, and it's it's not only is it not too early to get involved, this is when you should be getting involved. Great. All right. I feel a little better. Today's show is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient you can start communicating in under 48 hours. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. By the way, that's important. Like finding the right counselor is really important. And, and sometimes like it can be awkward if you're like, this counselor is not right for me, but you don't want to hurt their feet. You don't know what to do, how to manage that relationship. They're making it very easy, which is a very important part of making counseling successful. It's also more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com M54. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com M54. Lucy Nicotine is a company founded by Caltech scientists and former smokers looking for a better and cleaner nicotine alternative. Researched and developed for three years, Lucy has created a nicotine gum and lozenge, each with four milligrams of nicotine. The gum and lozenges come in a variety of flavors like wintergreen, cinnamon, pomegranate, cherry, and mint. Best of all, Lucy is convenient and discreet. A subscription to Lucy ships directly to your door each month. You don't even have to leave the house. Look, I've never been a smoker, but 
My parents were both smokers. I saw how hard it was for them to quit. They had to try over and over and over again before they finally did. So any product that's making that easier for people is literally saving lives. So uh, we're on board. Lucy lozenges and gums are also FSA and HSA eligible. So you can spend pre-tax dollars on them. Majority 54 listeners can go to lucy.co and use the promo code majority54 to get 20% off all products on your first order, including gum or lozenges. That's lucy.co and use the promo code majority54 at checkout. Also, there's a disclaimer here, warning that this product contains nicotine derived from tobacco and nicotine is an addictive chemical. All right, for Aren't We Relatable Corner, uh, this is a little bit different, um, but uh, it is maybe the most adorable thing that we've ever done, uh, which is uh, this is an interview uh, that I conducted the other day with my co-author uh, in a new book that comes out August 31st. The book is called Courage Is. Uh, it is a board book for uh, you know very young kids. We're talking kids who either are just learning to read or before they can read. This is a book for parents to read to, you know, to like two to, to four-year-olds. Um, and it is a book about having courage in your everyday life. And it, it and my co-author is my son, True. Uh, True is seven years old. Um, a little bio on our next guest. Um, he is going into the second grade. He really likes Legos. Um, and he likes to play shortstop. And he loves baseball. And his second favorite sport is basketball. That's And he tries a new food once a month. That's like his courage thing. So with that, I give you my interview with my outstanding son, True, who's also my co-author in this book, Courage Is. True, welcome to Majority 54. Thank you. All right, True. Uh, so we, we've written this book. Tell the audience what it was that got us thinking about writing this book in the first place. Do you remember the stories that we were making up in bed? Can you tell people about them? There was these knights and dragons and we used to combine them, and we used to record them so we could listen to them again. Yeah, so at bedtime, we would tell these stories of knights and dragons, and can you maybe give an example of one of those stories? So, like, when Mog and Bog were playing, they were really... They were Mog and Bog. The dragons. Okay, and they, were, they were, I think, twin. They were cousins who looked exactly alike, except one was a quarter inch taller, and that's how people could tell them apart, right? Yeah. Okay, tell us more. So there's one story where we had a lesson where they were sharing. So mom got mom got a toy, and a bog wanted to play with it, but mom said no. And then their dad said. You need to share, Mog, so you shared with Bog, and then they just shared playing. You know what my favorite uh, Mog and Bog story was? It was actually the one where uh, Mog started wearing polka dot pants, and everybody made fun of him, and he just kept wearing them. And then, and then eventually, and then eventually, everybody was like, "Oh wait, I need some polka dot pants." And then the coolest part of that is, is that when we wrote this book, you insisted that our outstanding illustrator, Alyssa Gonzalez, put in a part where there are polka dot pants. It's not part of the story, but it's like just this little shout out to our original bedtime stories that there are polka dot pants in the book. Yep. All right, so we started doing that, and then we realized we could maybe teach some other kids a lesson, like the lessons we were learning at bedtime. And what lesson did you decide you wanted to teach younger kids? Um, courage. 
And what about courage? Like it, it help everybody understand what you think courage is. Like is courage just never being scared? No, you be scared, but you do it anyway. And so what, when people think about courage, what usually do they think about? They don't, they usually think about big stuff, right? And we mentioned that in the book, like what kind of big examples do people usually think of when they think about people who have courage? Like the first one to fly a rocket ship or Jackie Robinson. Yeah. And those people definitely had courage, right? Yeah. But in the book, what you wanted younger kids to know is that they have lots of chances to have courage. So like, what are some examples of that? Um, like your first day of school. Tell me about your first day of school. Did it, did it require courage? Yes, a lot of courage. So I got there, I was like three years old and it was my first day of school without my parents. So I was really scared on that day, but I did it anyway. And now you still go to that school and is it like, that's like all your teammates, all your best friends, everybody is at that school, right? Yeah. My point is, and the point of the book is that you're usually really glad that you showed courage. It usually works out really well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now you and I, we put this book together. We wrote it not for kids your age and not for grownups my age, but for kids younger. Why do you think it's important that kids who are like three or four years old that they get the opportunity to learn this lesson about courage. So that they have courage to do more stuff. Give me one more example of something in the book. Like, what's your favorite example in the book? And there's a bunch of them that we put in there based on your own experiences. What is your favorite example in the book of a kid who had courage? Um, the little boy who was scared to go down the slide, but he did it anyway, and he saw that it was really fun. And then he just starts going down the slide like crazy, right? Again and again and again. Because he's like, oh my gosh. I, and when you have courage like that, are you usually looking back on it going, I can't believe I was scared to do this? Yes. Yeah, and that's that tends to be how it works. All right, so let me ask you this. What is something that you're scared about right now that you think it's going to require courage but you want to do it doesn't have to be today or this weekend yes. no this yeah tell me about that um i was really scared to do this it was really hard to convince me but i did it anyway and are you glad that you did this interview yes <laughs> and you're having fun doing it yes okay that's awesome yeah you were really scared to do it right um but and you were scared to write a book right Yes. And it turns out that's been really cool. How did it make you feel when we saw the cover of our book and it said, Courage is by Jason and True Candor with illustrations by Alyssa Gonzalez? It was so cool. Yeah. And now, remember you asked, is this going to be in my school library? And I, and I asked the company, the publisher, and they're like, yeah, it's going to be like in every store. It can be in the school library, no problem. Why do you want it to be in your school library? So I can show my friends that I actually made a book. Yeah, pretty awesome, huh? And when your little sister goes to your school, maybe she'll read your book. Yep. Probably she'll read it before then, right? Definitely. In fact, we'll probably read it to her. Definitely. All right. Is there anything else you want to say to these people about why they should buy this book or anything like that? Because it's a super good book. 
That's a pretty good argument. Okay. Pretty good sales pitch, I mean. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for doing this, True. I really appreciate you coming on my show. Uh, anybody listening to this, you can get Courage Is by Jason and True Candor with illustrations by Alyssa Gonzalez. Wherever you buy books, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it at simonandschuster.com. You can get it at Barnes & Noble. Uh, you can pre-order it right now. It comes out on August 31st. So, True, it comes out three days before your eighth birthday. So, that's pretty cool, huh? Yep. I mean, Pretty impressive that you're going to be a published author before you turn eight. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's still impressive at eight, but at seven, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> Big nod. Okay, yes. True, thank you so much for coming on Majority 54. You are welcome. Hey, coming up soon, we're going to do a whole episode just dedicated to answering your voicemails. Uh, so whatever questions you have about anything and everything... You know, give us a call, 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. Uh, I think for both of us, those are our favorite episodes to do, so leave us some good ones. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram, and our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. True is not on social media, thank goodness. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard, and theme music is provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.